Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're going to have a bit of fun and also learn a bit about the journey of a CFO from the US to Asia. Stepping outside your personal comfort zone, we're going to learn about financial performance, raising capital, life in Asia, as well as everything that's changed in the last few years. I'm joined by Matt Foley, founder of Pico Hanna. He's involved in all kinds of things from fundraising, seed to IPO, all the way from Singapore. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got a lot to cover today. What the listeners can't hear and can't appreciate is the off-tape conversation that we had. We went on all kinds of different angles and explored the depth of your personal history, which I find fascinating. We're going to share it with the listeners today. But let's start with who you are and what you do so people can understand a bit better Matt the man. An operational CFO is how you describe yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, especially at Pico Hanna, what kind of problems that you're trying to solve there? Yeah, well, it, operational CFO is basically a CFO that wasn't a banker. So I've done a lot of, uh, and that's not calling the bankers <laughs> anything negative or right. suggesting they're in. You're setting that. out your stool straight away. Okay. Just just, just kind of boxing it in as we do <laughs> here in Singapore. Uh, but uh, I'm an operational CFO, so I help companies do things like run their operations. Uh, I do turnarounds, transformations, shared services. And as you say, I've done a lot of fundraising over the years for seed companies all the way up to, as you mentioned, IPOs. So that's the main difference. It's really hands-on operational finance stuff, helping the company manage its finances, but also putting on a lot of different hats. I don't think most CFOs out there can just wear one hat and focus on producing the financial statements anymore. That's, that's very obvious, right? If you're doing that, you're out of a job very soon, I assure you. Um, but um, it's, it's wearing a lot of different hats, and it's doing a lot of things in the organization to help drive productivity across the operations and ensuring a return for uh, investors. Uh, and helping the company to scale, positioning it to take advantage, advantage of opportunities not only in the market, but also in the capital markets, um, whether it's raising financing uh, on the private market or in the public markets. Mm -hmm. That's basically what I do. Excellent. <clears throat> and what kind of companies would that be for? Because from the offset, people may think, well, you know, a small startup wouldn't need your kind of services because, oh, yeah. you know, they don't need a CFO. What's the reality there? What kind of companies are you working with at Picohana? Well, Picohana goes in and we basically take over the back office. We simplify, automate, and then run the back office for these companies. Our target company is anywhere from zero, or I shouldn't say zero, of course, but from five employees up to 50, up to $10 million in revenue. And we claim we're sector agnostic. We have companies who are in media, in tech, of course, uh, we have family offices. We have private equity firms. Uh, we do really uh, everything that is to be done in the back office. Uh, we take that completely off their hands and we run it for them. Uh, part of that is this what I refer to as ad hoc CFO advisory services. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our, our firms, a lot of our clients are, as you mentioned, startups uh, or, or they're at that stage of development where they're actually looking externally for investors whether it's for funding, and in most cases that is the case, it's funding, but they're looking also for strategic partnerships. And that's where I come in and, and I have colleagues who help me, uh, and we provide them with ad hoc CFO advisory. It's not a full-time CFO gig, uh, nor do they need that. I highly advise, I advise all my clients, don't even consider hiring a CFO in most of these situations. Um, but it's enough CFO coverage that it gets them on the right track and it, it points them in the right direction. And, and that's what we do. We we engage with our clients as a trusted advisor, unlike a lot of these service providers. And I can get to my story around that in a minute, where where we how we came to Picoana. But a lot of these service providers don't know their clients. They don't engage with them on the basis of really helping their business and helping them scale. Hmm. Um, we go in and we get to know our clients. We know every one of them personally. Uh, we are advisors to the firm. In fact, we're trusted advisors to them. And they depend on us and come to us uh, when needed. And, and in most situations, whether it has to do with the back office or otherwise, they usually come to us for advice or 
to find that resource that they need to address that gap in their operations or otherwise. So how would that be different, say, to the advice that an angel investor who sits as an advisor to that company would provide and or a traditional accountant who may want to you know expand their services beyond simply doing the books and you know mm. they often you know claim to provide those kind of services don't they but actually at the end of the day they just do the payroll and the books right so where do you sort of sit with all of that is is something that these two parts of the 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 equation aren't providing you're doing something different here well i think there's a couple things so how we came to Pico Hana is that we actually were looking at investing in a corporate services or a business services firms a few firm a few years ago. We were looking to either buy outright or uh, make a, a an investment that gave us a material interest in the firm. Uh, a business services firm, as you probably well know, is a really nice little cash flow if you can if you can scale it and. You know, these are repeating customers who pay their bills every month. And because you're providing the accounting services, usually you're getting your bill paid. So it's very timely payment and it's a very reliable cash flow. When we went out, we looked at over 100 companies between here and Hong Kong, uh, trying to find an investee company or a company we could acquire. And what we found was that you have basically three tiers in the market. As we see it, the, the top tier are these large behemoths like TMF, Intertrust, Orangefield, uh, large, large companies that provide these services. And you can go in there and basically they'll set you up anywhere in the world and you can manage it uh, uh, remotely. Uh, and, and they do that very well, but they don't really get into knowing your business or providing guidance on how you should manage certain risk or otherwise. Right. They just don't mm -hmm. become that trusted advisor. They don't know you or your business well enough. And they're expensive. And then you have these mid-tier firms here in Singapore and in Hong Kong that are quite large, but they're mostly focused on a specific geography such as Singapore or Hong Kong or Singapore and Malaysia. And again, those are fairly large companies that um, provide a good service locally, um, but they have a very um, demanding fee schedule where they seem really cheap up front. But then they have a fee sheet or fee schedule that looks like more, you know, the most complex algorithm I've ever seen. They nickel and dime you and you end up paying a lot more than you think. And again, you're not getting that support or that uh, that um, uh, engagement that you would otherwise like and need to grow your company. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you're dealing with a service provider who's not going to be responsive. Their response times are usually 48 hours. Uh, they do everything highly manual processes internally, so most of your reporting is in Excel. Uh, you're usually getting your financial statements 30 days after a month in, so their financial information that they produce is useless to you as a business owner, mm -hmm. right? Most of the people that we engage with on this basis that we're taking clients off these these fairly large mid-tier providers, you know, they they just watch the bank accounts. That's how they manage their business and operations mm -hmm. and the working capital. Um, so that's not really conducive to really, you know, managing a business or even scaling a business. And then thirdly, you have these thousands, if not tens of thousands, mom and pops who are accountants who think they know customer service. Uh, and they're very difficult to deal with. Again, their fee schedules are very complex. They're very expensive at the end of the day. And again, you're getting very manual uh, processes. You're not getting real-time information. Things aren't uh, available. And uh, again, your response times are very, very uh, long, I guess you should say. Mm. So where we saw the gap is just this. We saw lack of service. Um, we saw very complex fee arrangements. Uh, and we saw lack of engagement and, and advisory um, as part of the deal. And that's kind of how we became Picohana. We started talking to clients. And uh, before we knew it, they were like, yeah, please come in. And we came in, we basically deployed a platform that includes the best of breed cloud technologies. Uh, we integrate them and we run them. We process all the transactions and we do it all for a flat monthly fee, which, which by the way, also includes ad hoc CFO advisory. Um, so we, we have found that, that, that our clients in particular, obviously, are very, very happy with our service. And they find that our response times of 30 minutes or less and them getting their financial information on a real-time basis is hugely beneficial to running yeah. the company.
right? Uh, we, we really see it as a viable solution and something that these companies are, are lacking severely. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Especially when you look at startups and how, choose my words carefully, how poorly they really, I mean, I, I speak for myself having been in this situation, how poorly they are aware of their own cash position and Really, those startups live and die by cash flow. And even as you say, like those 30-day delays in cash reporting or just looking at the bank accounts is not enough you know, for a no. startup, especially when you have payroll as well to meet and et cetera, et cetera. So there, those, those situations right there, Graham, they're, they're flying blind. I, I don't know. The, the other thing is that a lot of these founders and, and MDs of these development stage companies, it, it's mind-numbing to watch them yeah. actually trying to run their own payroll because they're going to save a couple hundred bucks a month, right? Yeah. That is not a good use of your time. If you're an MD or a founder of a startup, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And, and also just having access to the information, even though they have the information themselves, just to be able to put that all together is even harder sometimes. You know, you may think it's simple just to look at the bank account, but, you know, there's a lot of reconciliation. You don't know what's the actual situation. You don't know what's outstanding. And that's something that only gets worse as the startup grows, isn't it? And then most startup founders, I feel, are in a situation where they their response is to bury their head in the sand. That's the only way of dealing with it. Somehow it will work out is the attitude mm. that they have, right? Which is never the right attitude in these situations, is it? But you're, no, what you're doing not. is you're going in and giving them a bit of discipline, I suppose, and giving them a system that they can work with. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a, well, first off, it, you're absolutely right about this. It, 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 I, I don't have anything for the founder or, or MD or startup uh, CEO who would rather spend their time doing that. Mm. And, 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 uh, if you think that you're going to be able to raise funding with your back office or your financial information in disarray, uh, that is a huge mistake. Investors will key in on that very, very quickly. So it's best to get your house in order to begin with. And uh, it's surprisingly cheap. I mean, we go in and again, every a lot of this stuff is automated. We usually work very closely with with startups and founders on negotiating fees and we have a standard fee. And the reason I say that is because it's a lot cheaper than you might think, right? And uh, it's completely unnecessary. And if you think about the time that you're going to waste, so let's, we've got to assume you're going to be successful as a startup founder. So if you think it's going to be a good use of your time on the back end to resolve all these problems, then, I, I, again, I got nothing for that. Right. right? Just, just out of interest, is you've sat with a number of different companies of Different stripes, different sizes, all the way from the one-man bands up to the you know the large multinational corporations, and you've been involved in IPOs, so you, you've you've seen the whole gamut of different you know different bosses, startup founders, investors, and so on. Is there something that continues to surprise you as a CFO when you look at founders, for example, and the way they think about their businesses? Is there sort of a a repeat pattern that you see? cropping up with these mm. founders, especially when it comes to their finances? I mean, we talked about an example being, you know, the lack of awareness is one. Is there something else which you see, which, you know, you are in a unique position to see that entrepreneurs don't see about their own businesses? Well, I can tell you that the successful entrepreneurs and CEOs, you know, it's, it's the same thing you've heard out of, you know, all the periodicals and magazines. It is they recognize their shortfalls and they know when they need help and they get it, hmm. right? It, they, they recognize that they're not an expert on this matter. And, uh, you know, usually there's a lot of warning signs with that. Unfortunately, most people leave it later than it needs to be. But I think most successful founders and CEOs that I've worked with over the years have recognized they they have the shortfalls and they're they're really good at a particular thing and they focus on that and they get the right people involved to help them run the company and make it a success. Um, and I think I think a lot of startup founders, um, you know, talent is really really hard to find in any market, but especially here in Singapore, it's quite acute. And uh, the mistake I see uh, these these CEOs and and founders making. Uh, is they they just they just grab a warm body, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not like Google and Yahoo and those interview techniques that were 
uh, almost legend when they first started in the Valley years ago and still employ, right? Uh, you don't see a lot of that going on. There's not a lot of vetting of the candidates because they're just trying to grab whatever's out there. And that usually comes back to haunt them. But the successful ones, they recognize their shortfalls, shortcomings, you might say. Uh, and and they try to make up by, for that by hiring really good people and, and, and uh, getting them in to help them. Mm. Well, let's talk about the environment a bit in Singapore as well. And also how you got there, because that's an interesting story mm. in itself. So how long have you been in based in Singapore itself now, Matt? Well, I've been in Singapore for over 10 years. I've been working across Asia for over 20. I was in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and, and uh, Korea before this, uh, living permanently. I spent time in Thailand, and uh, I've worked in India and Australia, uh, spent a lot of time in those places. But I guess I'm to start with, I'm originally from California. Believe it or not, I grew up on a cattle ranch just east of San Francisco out in the valley. Uh, very close to a, a little town called Oakdale. And uh, it's just before you start getting into the foothills and going up to Sonora and Yosemite Valley. Really beautiful part of California. Um, but like uh, like a lot of farm boys from that area, I had uh, limited choices, you might say. Right. and was looking for a bit of adventure. So I ended up enlisting in the U.S. Army and actually spent four years. And I think uh, if I could give a shout out to Praveen Vulu over at uh, Evie, uh, and well, I'll come back to Evie. I'd like to speak a little bit about Evie mm. as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, I spent uh, a bit of time in uh, Germany uh, and then also with the 101st there in Kentucky. And then I ended up uh, going to school uh, there in California at, at the uh, San Luis Obispo Polytechnic School. Mm. Um, you know, talking a little bit about my army, it, Praveen loves this story when I touch on it. So I might as well. Uh, sure tell it to you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was in the U.S. Army, I ended up in Germany from 86 to 88. So for all your listeners, they can probably figure out how old I am. Um, but uh, I, I ended up 13 clicks from the Iron Curtain at the time. So this was the two years before yeah. it came down. And obviously, Germany and Europe has changed dramatically. But at the time, I was part of – well, apparently, I was – I had a high IQ – I lacked empathy, and I had good judgment. Right. And that's why they chose me, and they put me on a special weapons team, which meant that I was responsible or part of a team that was responsible for launching a tactical nuclear weapon if the Russians came across the wall. Right. So, what was the bit that you were lacking in again? I was lacking empathy. Right. Was that a good component for being in that team? <laughs> <laughs> we don't care about these people coming through. Let's nuke them. Uh, apparently, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, this guy pressed it. No, he doesn't give a shit. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, he does not give a shit. Put Foley on it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll somehow uh, work through this. Uh, wow. But yeah, I, that was the team so, I was Wait, wait, wait. And, let's back up a bit. That was, that was a lot of information. What was this team again? It was called a special weapons team. Right. Which their primary mission, our primary mission, was to put a what was known as a tactical nuclear weapon, which was a 200-pound howitzer projectile into an 8-inch howitzer, Army howitzer, uh, and shoot it downrange about 30 kilometers and then head for the hills, basically. Wow. Cut and run. Uh, and, what was the size yeah, of the warhead in that? Uh, the warhead had the same yield or output as the ones they dropped in Japan during World War II, so it was a big one. Uh, it was scary stuff that they even had the technology. This was back in 86, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you so, would be worried firing that thing, right? You'd be... Oh, right. The yeah. range wouldn't... Was it 30K, you said? 30 yeah, 30 kilometers. But right. I don't think... Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd be dead, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> a really bad case of cancer or something. I don't right. know. But uh, yeah, it, it was not a... Um, fortunately, obviously, it never happened. But uh, they were they were armed to do that. And oh. they intended to do that because at the time... And this is NATO I'm talking about. We were part of a NATO unit. But uh, at the time, the Russians had something like 10 tanks to R1 and 20 men to R1 based on the border. Mm -hmm. And they just felt they were going to be overrun and didn't have didn't have the means to defend. They would have to use that. So yeah. um, it's pretty scary. And when you start looking at, you know, that was 30 years ago, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's uh, the technology must have advanced. So the nuclear threat today, I think, is very real. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
it's a concern, right? Well, especially today and with the current climate. What's fascinating about that story is the time at which you were based in Berlin. So you were there until 88, you said, right? Which was more or less a year before the, was it November 89 that the wall fell? Was it November 90? I can't yeah. remember. Right, November it was 89, you're correct, yeah. November yeah. 89 when the wall fell. So you were, yes. at, were you there at the time when Reagan came across and said, tear this wall down? Was that about that time? I can't remember my exact. I actually, I actually got redeployed to the 101st Airborne just before that. So right. I believe he came after that in March yeah. I, I, or something like that. But I redeployed, I believe, in August or September uh, of uh, 88. So it was basically the year before. Right. Well, it's a fascinating time of change, isn't it? And it's something which, if you haven't lived through, I don't think, you know, the, the current generations, especially young people growing up today, really appreciate what happened at that time, especially when the wall fell. <laughs> You know, and everybody talks about. You're making about, me feel really old. Well, Grant. I mean, I was there. <laughs> I, I remember it on TV as well. So, and I wasn't. You know, how old was I then? In '89, I was 17. I remember that seeing that fall that on the TV. Yeah, we're not far apart, man. Well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so I can speak with authority. This is for old guys speaking, right? But there you go. But that was a moment of history, and I think that's really fascinating. Is that it was a time of great change. People talked about. I mean, there's that article the end of history and all that thing mm. that came out of that time and what's interesting about your story is there is a lot of change as well you were there in germany at a time of great change and then mm. you moved back to the states and then you you consciously left there's two things that i want to i don't know challenge you on and i want to see what you think about this is you consciously left the u.s to move to asia yeah. In the 90s, I know the US is not what it is today back in the 90s, and it was just coming out of a recession there. But it was sort of, you know, when you moved to Asia in the mid 90s, things were picking up in the US and we had the dot com movement forming, right? I mean, 95, 96, 97, Windows 97 coming out. So it was a great time to be in tech back then. And then also throwing into that, there's a personal story about you used to be a great golfer. You were an eight handicap golfer, I think. And then you decided to quit golf to take up surfing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you wanted to challenge yourself and I guess step outside your comfort zone. So I'm curious about this theme in your life, Matt, that you have moved from a comfortable area in the world to something that was a challenge. You know, Asia in the mid nineties was not a place of great growth, right? As it is today. And you also gave up golf for surfing. So is this something you're conscious of, challenging yourself and stepping outside your comfort zone? I'm curious to hear how you see it. Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I think it's kind of an interesting story how I came to Asia. Um, you know, back in 95, I was working with Coopers and Librand. Uh, I had just gotten my CPA certification, or did I? I can't remember the exact timing of that. But it was 95 with Coopers, and uh, a lot of my clients at the time were clients, uh, were venture capitalists. And I was a senior on the audit up at a uh, firm called Walden, which is a well-known firm out here mm -hmm. in Asia. Walden has changed dramatically over the years. This was based, this was back when they were just a firm right there in San Francisco, and they had ties to China, um, but they were focused primarily on the Valley. And there was this... American Taiwanese guy, Bill Tai, who's really well known in the Valley, who came to me and says, hey, you interested in looking at this? I was actually his auditor and, and uh, it showed me a plan where he thought there was an opportunity to bring the Internet to Asia hmm. because there was a big gap in the market that he had identified. IBM actually had developers in places like Taiwan. And in order to get the code back to the Valley, they had to put somebody on the plane with a floppy. Wow. Who would basically take it back to in the a valley. briefcase? Yeah. yeah, in a briefcase, and it's like the movies. Uh, yeah, probably with a handcuff, right? Yeah. And uh, anyways, Bill said, you know, I have an investment and uh, people on the board at UUNet, which was the leading lease line provider of the internet to corporates in the United States at the time. They eventually got bought by WorldCom, and so he said, "Are you interested?" And literally, I was his first employee. And uh, we raised half a million from UUNet and then got on a plane together and came out to, to Taiwan. And the reason it was Taiwan is because he had family there who knew the telecom. And his idea was he was going to go in and do deals with the telecoms and stitch together a network in Asia. 
And we actually did that. We grew that company from basically me and him up to 600 employees and uh, an IPO on the NASDAQ market. Unfortunately, we brought in senior executives from AT&T who then (laughs) – You know where this is going, right? (laughs) Yeah, proceeded – I won't name names, but proceeded to spend all our IPO money building data centers and (laughs) – uh, it was pretty shocking because I remember I hadn't been to Taiwan in a, you know, a couple months, and I went there to see the data center. And this is how screwed up the whole thing was. It, it was, you know, they spent $250 million worth of proceeds on two data centers, one wow. of them being in Taiwan. And I was like, guys, what is that over there? And I'm from the Valley in California, so we know what a flood uh, dike looks like, like a, a a berm, right? Mm. I was like, what is that over there? Oh, there, that's to keep the river from flooding. And I was like, you just spent, you know, $150 million building a data center in a floodplain, <laughs> right? And uh, so that was pretty interesting. But because they spent all the money right as the internet bubble popped, uh, you know, they declared uh, in April of, uh, I believe it was 2001, uh, they were, uh, they declared bankruptcy. I had left in December. I actually had been fired by the CEO in December. I, that's a whole other story. But, uh, well, she didn't like what I was saying about them spending building da- Yeah, building data centers. Like, yeah, I was like, you're going you're gonna to bring the company down, basically. And sure enough, uh, less than six months later, they did. You're right, yeah. Well, so, <laughs> so when you actually moved to Taiwan, you moved at a time, you said – uh, you know, you were, you were effectively bringing the, the internet to Asia, but that was 96, right? That's kind yeah. of... Okay, so at that time, things were kicking off in the valley, but you chose to go to Asia. I'm curious about that decision because I imagine the people around you, that would have been the natural path to pursue, to come out of, you know, maybe the corporates into, mm. you know, the burgeoning startup scene or at least the tech scene. It wasn't so much startup scene back in 96, right? But then you had people like Netscape emerging... And yeah. so on. But you chose to go to Taiwan. I'm curious about that. Well, keep, it, keep in mind, Graham, that during that time, I was traveling regularly back to the U.S. because the company was indeed a U.S. headquartered company. Right. And so I spent a lot of time in the Valley uh, during those years up to basically 2000. I was based in Asia, but I was spending – I was doing probably, if I remember correctly, about one trip per month and spending a week of time in the Valley uh, with the team. So – Although I chose to move to Asia and be based in Asia, first Taiwan, then Hong Kong for a short time, then up to Korea, um, I actually uh, spent a lot of time in the Valley. And I think the timing of that is when I really kind of moved out full throttle to Asia because once once the internet bubble burst, at the time it was kind of like, well, what opportunity is there? And there were other opportunities in Asia to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I did just that. Uh, So – uh, it, the, I think that um, I had a deep connection with the Valley uh, still through 2000, 2001. But um, given the Internet bubble bursting, I remember, you know, a few months before that, I remember uh, uh, the whole uh, Garden.com or Garden Tool. You go down the, the, the freeway from the airport to San Francisco. There were all these billboards, all, all these dot-com yeah. companies. Pets.com. Like, cool. Yeah, pets.com was one I remember. I mean, it was just, it was like, it was bizarre, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, shortly thereafter, it, it popped. And, and I think that's for, um, I think, more out of seeking opportunity uh, than anything else. And just kind of the sense of uh, adventure and something different, mm. uh, I decided to, to basically uh, stay in Asia. Yeah. And uh, I, I benefited from that. I mean, Asia, as you well know, you've been out here for a long time as well. It's it's grown dramatically, and there's still a huge opportunity in the region. Huge oh, opportunity, sure. even in the last five or six years. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious about what it was actually like in Taiwan in '96 of all places. You know, what you were responsible for helping build out the internet there. What was it like when you actually got there? What was the internet when you arrived in Taiwan? Because it was no backwater. It had an established semiconductor base at that time, right? But when you got there yeah. in 96, internet-wise, where were we? Yeah, I don't think that there was a whole lot of internet. Uh, it was just coming online, to be fair. But you're right. It was very difficult to do business there. Uh, because you were you were dealing with the large incumbent monopoly government owned telecoms. Uh, yeah. I think it was DGT uh, was the telecom of the day. If it's not still, uh, but dealing with those guys, it was like you go into a room and there's like 20 Taiwanese guys, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, very government uh, oriented. Uh, you know, it was that kind of situation. Uh, and it was uh, a very, very long process to negotiate anything with them. Uh, so it was it was a very challenging environment to get that done. And again, I think it's it's um, kind of the standard playbook in a lot of places out here where as long as we were showing we were making investment in Taiwan, they were willing to work with us. And I think that was one of the key decisions or key drivers of deciding to put a data center in there. Hmm. Um, But, yeah, it was it was uh, very government oriented, uh, very um, the word escapes me, but uh, bureaucratic uh, and, uh, you know, not. It, although they had a big semiconductor uh, presence, uh, you weren't dealing with a lot of tech-savvy people, mm. right? It was uh, a lot of incumbent players uh, within the government and maybe even the telecom itself. Yeah. Um, but, but Taiwan has developed. I mean, we were there. They had just opened the Grand Hyatt, if that tells you how long ago oh. that was. There was nothing around there for the mm. most part. Um, Interesting. Do you think that sort of speaks for Asia in general back in those days? Because you lived and worked in Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, and now you're in Singapore. So you've seen all this change. When you describe Taiwan, away from the internet side, the technology side of things, but the attitude towards business, the attitude towards especially foreigners coming in and doing business there. Have you seen a distinct change, a tangible change? Because, you know, you're best positioned to be able to determine whether or not that has actually changed seeing you know maybe generations of business people in asia sort of grow through you've got the older generations who may be a bit more you know top down in their approach towards business but there's a sort of young generation coming through what do you actually see i you know obviously taiwan and and most of asia now is opening up to business uh, have been open for business Uh, they've taken in a lot of foreign direct investments so uh, as far as investing in country, that's fairly easy to do compared with 20, 30 years ago. Um, I see uh, a lot more foreigners, obviously. I mean, you never saw anybody from the West for the most part in places yeah. like Taiwan, right? So uh, obviously that has changed dramatically. It's become very, very cosmopolitan in most of these countries. I mean, even when you go into places like Thailand, Thailand is becoming a middle-class nation there in Bangkok. Yeah. It's it's changed dramatically, and and it's interesting to see how that change impacts and influences business. Um, but I think for the most part, it's uh, almost a given that you can go into these countries and and do business uh, if you play by the rules. And and uh, of course, you're not uh, causing problems with the government. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just you don't do that. Um, but you basically pay, play by their rules, and and you'll be uh, able to do business. And and I think a lot of people are. I think cross border. Uh, global, the globalization of Asia is is very real, and you see it on the ground here in Singapore, especially. Yeah, um, there's a lot of foreign companies coming in here, a lot of high net worth individuals and and families coming to to Singapore. Uh, this is one of the primary destinations for money investment in Asia. Yeah, and talent as well as following it. Do you feel? Do you feel? Do you find that? People from, you know, the people that you've grown up with, if they were to come to Singapore, especially Asia in general, but particularly Singapore, will they be surprised by where we are now? Because there is a con- there's a conception, isn't there, about America, especially California being the, the bastion of free enterprise and being like where you need to go to start up your business. And there's still many mm. reasons why you would do that, right? But mm. the attitude towards business, especially when it comes to red tape, bureaucracy, access to capital... Now we're looking at Singapore. Do you think people are pleasantly surprised or shocked? Or is it kind of like still nowhere near where we are in the U.S.? Well, I, I mean, there's there's no doubt that Silicon Valley is the premier startup location and destination, right? That's where a lot of a lot of investors are. That's where a lot of companies who have who've grown up there are, obviously. Um, but that's all changing. I mean, you don't have to be in Silicon Valley anymore. I think... Uh, I listened to your podcast uh, this past week, and I think your guest uh, was was highlighting Austin and Boston, and you know, there's a lot of other destinations, yep. including London and, and Europe itself. And I think Asia represents that as, as well as anybody, uh, especially here in Singapore. There, you know, it, it's kind of one of those situations where I look at it, and 
the government here and the investor community has been very, very successful creating this, what they call an ecosystem, right? There's incubators uh, all over the place here in Singapore. Right. Uh, in fact, I was talking to Unilever's incubator today. Mm. I, they've set up an incubator. I, I, you would, I would have never guessed that Unilever Lever has an incubator here in Singapore, but it makes a lot of sense, yeah. right? Um, so there's been a lot of push by the government. There's been a lot of incentives through the grant schemes here to set up uh, as a startup to get involved with these incubators. And, and it's really easy to do business here. You can set up a company very easily in Singapore. Uh, getting an employment pass is another issue, right? Mm. But setting that aside, you can come in and pretty much set up a company and do business as long as you're, you know, doing the right things as far as, you know, filings and, and all that stuff, the compliance stuff. Um, I think I think one of the challenges I see here in Singapore, though, is that this could have been a little bit, could be a little bit overbaked. One of the things I do uh, that that you may have seen on my LinkedIn is I'm a, a mentor and advisor over at the SMU Innovation or Institute of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Uh, SMU, for, our, for your listeners, is the Singapore Management University. And it's one of the top universities here. It gets a whole lot of high marks by uh, 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 you know, faculty, students, uh, alum, and, and overseas as well. Um, you know, when they have this program, and I can tell you that the companies that come through there uh, it, it's interesting to me because I think the ratio in the Valley is eight or nine times uh, out of 10, you should expect your startups to fail, mm-hmm. right? Eight or nine times out of 10, you're going to fail. But here, I would say it's probably based on what I see over there on the panels and in general in the incubators, it's quite a bit higher. And I think one of the drivers with that is that the government has been so generous with its grant scheme. Literally, if you're a, a business, an entrepreneur, you can set up a business here and you can get a grant from the government uh, up to $150,000, I think it is. Um, now, that grant has to be spent in certain ways, only so much on marketing and things like that. But, I mean, that's a lot of money. And if you have an idea that is viable or not, you can use that money and survive for two years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a lot of that going on in the in, in the market here in Singapore, and a lot of these companies are going to start falling away, and mm. and and then we'll see who can really compete in the market. My point is is that the ecosystem they've built here uh, is really good. I, I commend the government and and the private investors and companies, international, multinationals, and otherwise, uh, who have come in here and helped create that. Um, but I think it's a bit frothy. And we'll see. Time will tell. You know how this uh, how this can be adjusted, or if it will be adjusted. That's a very um, interesting point that you raise, isn't it? Because you would have thought that you know access to capital, no matter how much access people have, was a good thing. But what you're saying is that too much access, <clears throat> especially coming from you know sort of a top down approach to it from a government, <clears throat> may not necessarily. It will in time. It will balance out. But does does that have an effect as well? Say, for example, on the angel community, because I imagine. You know, if you have the government handing out 150k in grants, then why do you need an angel investor now, right? So, apart from the the non-financial benefit they bring to the company, but that's an easier source of money, isn't it? So that may does that crowd them out? I mean, how, how's the angel investor community developing in Singapore? Well, I think I think the first off, the the angel community here is quite robust, in my opinion. There's a lot of high net worth uh, individuals. Uh, and family offices here that are looking for investments. I think their biggest challenge is they can't find investments they they like to invest in. Um, I think as far as crowding them out because you got a hundred and fifty thousand dollar government grant, if you know the problem is is if if you have a really good idea and you have a viable startup that is looking to scale, you're going to need much more than one hundred and fifty thousand. Um, I, I think the 150000 just prolongs the life of companies that would have never, ever raised money if they were in the valley, right? right? And, you know, that's all good for numbers and showing that startups are, you know, Singapore has more startups than, you know, any place else and all this stuff. But it's kind of uh, unrealistic to think that's going to be sustained and that there won't be any kind of fallout from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we, it's 
time will tell. I, you know, maybe they all have the killer idea, right? <laughs> you know, my my experience Probably tells not. me otherwise. Exactly. <laughs> so, but as um, you say, it's it's you know the rising tide raises all boats, doesn't it? So everybody's benefiting, but there is a downside to that, which will in time will straighten out. But we'll see. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you know the government here, you know, and and. You know, it's amazing how they run Singapore like if it's a corporation, as you probably well yeah. know. And uh, so they're very keen on developing the ecosystem and and giving it the tools that uh, are necessary to to help entrepreneurs thrive. Yeah. So um, it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just, you know, there may be a little bit of a reality check coming down the pipe. Right. But it's kind of what's needed to kickstart the startup scene in a place like Singapore, isn't it? Especially where really? it's come from, because... You know, you have the cultural bias there, you know, from years and years of people being involved in different kinds of industries from manufacturing originally to service industries, more later, sort of into the 90s, into sort of, you know, where they've consciously decided to get into startups really only in the last sort of six or seven years, right? So you had all of that. And then you had the financial centers. So there was there's a bias in the sense that people would have thought, well, you know, why should I be involved in a startup when I can go and work for an investment bank or you know some retail bank somewhere and have a good job and good life and so on? Well, that's a that's a hell of a sweat segue into the next subject I want to quickly cover. You, I've teed uh, you up. Go on. <laughs> you've teed me up, Graham. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, one of the things that Pico Hana does. So, going back to Pico Hana, we we provide business services, but I think. When you look at what we do for our clients longer term, we bring the latest best of breed cloud technologies and technologies in general to the table for our clients. And we deploy it and run it and help our clients improve productivity and lower their costs. We help them scale their business, right? Part of that is the technology that's coming online. So when you mention bankers, uh, I just read on Bloomberg where the head of Citigroup, I think it was, or ex-head said that 30% of the Investment bank jobs will be gone in the next five years. Mm. Um, going back to your your uh, statement or at least your reference to that accountant sitting there wondering what he should do, I can tell you that with the new technologies coming on, uh, and these are technologies that PicoHana will deploy, so we intend to be on the front wave of that for our clients. But with the new technologies being deployed, deployed, a lot of the jobs that we see in the market today will obviously be going away. Yeah. One of those, uh, going back to EV, so for your listeners, EV.ai, uh, this is a technology being developed here in Singapore by Praveen Vilu, and I think it's Jin He. I, 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 forgive me, Jen, if I get that wrong, but these guys have basically created an artificial intelligence that will replace your admin assistant, Yeah. Right. Uh, and they'll be connecting that into meeting room placements or scheduling and, and flights and hotels. I mean, your, your admin needs will go away as far as a human being. The same goes for accounting. So if you look at the blockchain technologies, as you well know, that's a dual register system. It's not unlikely that within the next five to ten years, there will be dual register systems popping up around the world where companies will have one register and then, the auditor or the firm who claims to be the auditor will have the other one along with the government and tax authority. So they'll be running algorithms in the background, and those algorithms will determine whether or not the company is booking accounting entries correctly and recognizing revenue properly and all that. And when you think about that and the implications of that, that eliminates the need for audits, mm. right? It really starts to eliminate. We're already seeing automation that eliminates the the requirement for an in-house accountant. Right. Well, because it's real time that. in a sense, right? Is that, well, is that really, why you don't need to audit it? Because audit's like a big lump of you know, reconciliation, well, it, isn't it? That's correct. Well, it's not necessarily just because it's real time, but they're going to be running algorithms that will flag anything that looks right. suspicious or isn't properly booked. So, And then if the government adopts it, you know, that, that eliminates the need for your annual filing, right? Because your annual filing will be automated, as will your tax returns. Things like that go away. So it's really, really interesting what could potentially happen out in the market and in business services over the next 10 years or so. Sure. And and going back to your accountant, I mean, that's, in my opinion, I'm a CPA. I'm, I'm an accountant by training. But I do think that your uh, 
your occupation as an accountant will probably be gone within the next 10 years. Mm. Uh, and, and again, it's going to be driven by these technologies like EV um, and, and blockchain and uh, companies like ours that are deploying these where we really help a, a business scale help these startups and SMEs scale so they don't have to worry about all that nonsense in the back office, right? Hmm. What's interesting is that's going to happen first in a place like Singapore, isn't it? I can imagine that the Singaporean government will be the first to adopt that kind of system compared to, uh, you know, let's say a Western government because they have that, that legacy. They have that history of doing that, right? That They seem to be much more open to adopting technologies to make things run better rather than protecting any kind of hedged interest or embedded interest, right? So you can see that shift, you know, though, you know, the future of accounting is going to happen in a place like Singapore. So mm. that's going to be fascinating because not only is it a place for a government who's open to adopting new ideas and trying new things and, and even, I guess, failing, but also it's now become a, a world-leading center for fintech, it seems. So that's going to be interesting for the next 10 years. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the Singapore government will, uh, will be a key uh, driver and supporter of all this technology development. Uh, it, it, look, it's going to be really interesting because you know, Singapore has made some bets over the years. So uh, you know, they bet on finance. Uh, they bet on uh, gambling and tourism. Uh, so they, they, they've made certain bets in the market and they've been able to adjust as this technology starts to come online. And it really makes these kinds of, uh, employment opportunities somewhat redundant in the market here. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a big push by Singapore. You hear it all the time. You got to retrain, you got to new, learn to code. You got to, you know, improve yourself and, and be ready for the next shift. Uh, they're big on that here and, and rightly so. Matt, before you go, we can't let you go without you really delivering on that story of the accountant. I know we've mentioned him a couple of times, but we did sort of bring him up off tape. So I want to kind of get you to nail your colors to the mast here and help this guy out. So there's an accountant somewhere in the world, and maybe he's, you know, CPA, or maybe he's thinking of becoming CPA, staring out the window, working for some telecoms, maybe in the finance department. Maybe he's in the southwest of the U.S., and everything that you said today is going to, I'm not going to give him answers, but going to put questions in his head, isn't it? It's going to be a question of what is the future of my business going to look like? You know, my industry, I've trained for a skill which may not be in demand in 10 years, right? From what you're saying now. And or, you know, I'm in a market geographically, which may not be the best one for me. When you look at somebody in that situation now, and there must be, it's not just one guy staring out the windows, it must be thousands of people with these kinds of skills, especially professionals. What kind of advice would you give them, you know, given what you've been through yourself personally, what would you suggest would be, you know, where they need to point in the right direction? Good God, Graham, that's a wide open question. Um, so that's why I gave it to you. Uh, to but you're, be fair, you're a man, you're a man uh, who can deal with this uncertainty. I think you've done very well for your personal history. You haven't had a tight track to run on, have you? You've been given quite a wide remit, so that's why I gave yeah, you a big open question. Well, you know, it's going to come back to um, taking risk and. Find something you love to do, uh, and I can't stress that, and find people who love doing that as well and, and make a go of it. I, I know that's a really fluffy answer, Graham. I, I don't know what else to say, but I got to say, you know, I am a, a bit older than your typical entrepreneur. Uh, throughout my life, I've embraced risk and change because I think I just get really bored if I am sitting there you know, chasing audit work papers or doing the accounting. Uh, so my advice is to get out there, take risk, find something you really love doing. And, and you know, in case in point, you say I've, uh, I've run a really kind of uh, a wide path here. Uh, to that point, one of the reasons that is, is because I love helping owners and business owners in particular, founders of these startups. I find it absolutely fascinating. Mm. And, you know, I think that's why, uh, you see in my career that once I had the problem solved or close to being solved, then I was on to the next issue or next opportunity. 
Um, and, and that's, you know, where I was moving around Asia quite a bit, living up in China. Hell, I even did a manufacturing turnaround up in China. Um, you know, I took a lot of risk and, and it was really in the pursuit of helping people. And that goes back to my Irish, my family motto, mm. right? I just recently got back from Ireland. My wife being Singaporean was all interested about the food and our family name. So we dug up our family history and, and uh, went around, toured all over Ireland. Ireland's beautiful, by the way. Uh, Irish are really nice people. Got along with them really well. But my family name has Irish heritage. And uh, I had never known until that trip that my family motto is that I may be of use. And I think that explains a lot of what I get satisfaction out of from helping these startups and helping these How, how did you stuff. discover that motto? Where was it written down? Uh, actually, it was in a souvenir shop. Um, <laughs> You had to buy afterwards. Yeah, I had to buy my own family motto. Buy buy your own family heritage back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's a great story. Uh, But uh, yeah, I mean that says something about my roots and my bloodline, I guess, because that's the way I feel. I mean, I take a lot of risks to help these people, and it doesn't always work out. And I think that in order to be really successful, you got to take risks. And in fact, you probably need to fail. Uh, You need to find out how hard it can be, really. And, uh, you know, you move forward and take advantage and you're better positioned to take advantage of those opportunities that present themselves. Yeah, that's Matt Foley, everybody. I think it's been a fascinating insight into your story. The founder, MD of Picohana. And um, before you go, Matt, please share a link with us where we can find out more about you. Yeah, well, you can go to Picohana.com. That's P-I-K-O-H-A-N-A.com, Picohana.com. Graham, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, the it really has. All mine. I really enjoyed. It. I think your story is an inspiration as well. Not just all those accountants staring out the window that we've mentioned a number of times today, but anybody that really, I think you know your key message there about being of use is really you know only made sense when you take a risk as well because you have to challenge yourself and step outside your comfort zone. And, and I think, especially for professionals as well, it's very easy to fall into. A comfortable life isn't it because you have a guaranteed path for you in your career and it's mapped out for you but from what you've done you could have easily just become an accountant in the finance department right but you describe yourself as an entrepreneur as well you've taken these risks not just in terms of moving from company to company but also geographically as well and i think that's inspirational inspirational so hopefully today if you've been listening to the story you got something out of it if you want to reach out there's the link to go and contact matt matt it'd be great to have you back on the show in the future as well i'd love to get you on and get an update because we've only really just scratched the surface i think there's a lot more to your story which we haven't shared today we haven't even shared some of the the adventures and some of the countries you've been to in your journey so please come back on and share that with us i'd be i'd love it graham it's been a pleasure and uh i really appreciate the opportunity to engage it's been been great You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.